You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages on the new life in Christ that John Stott presented at Founders Week 1977. John Stott was an author and rector emeritus of All Souls Church in London, England. Now, here is John Stott on Today in the Word radio. So far, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians has been unfolding the new life that God has given us in Christ the new society that God is creating in the church, and the new standards that he expects of his new society. The standard of unity, the standard of purity. If we are to live a life that is worthy of our Christian call and fitting to our Christian status as the people of God. Now we come finally to what I'm going to call new relationships the new relationships into which we have been brought. Because in the rest of the letter, from chapter 5, verse 21 to the end, Paul adds two further dimensions of Christian living. The first concerns the practical down-to-earth relationships of our home and of our work, husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and servants. And the second has to do with the enemy, that we face and the equipment that we need in unremitting spiritual warfare. Now, these two responsibilities, home and work on the one hand and spiritual conflict on the other, are very different from one another. Husbands and wives, parents and children, employers and employees are visible, tangible human beings. The principalities and powers that are arrayed against us, however, are invisible and intangible spiritual beings. Nevertheless, if our Christian faith is worth anything, it must be able to cope with both situations. It must be able to teach us how to behave Christianly at home and at work, and it must enable us to fight against the devil in such a way that we stand and do not fall. So our two topics this morning are harmony in the home, on the one hand, and I'll spend the longer period on that, and then just at the end, stability in the fight. Harmony in the home. I need, I think, to spend a few minutes at least in introducing this subject. The paragraph refers, as we know very well, to these three pairs of people, husbands and wives, parents and children, employers and employees, and the reciprocal relationships that should exist in each couple. All three are examples of submission, this subject to one another, and to see all three paragraphs as, as examples of this requirement of submission. Thus, wives are mentioned first, and a twelve verse 22, be subject to your husbands. Children are mentioned before their parents, and a twelve chapter 6, verse 1, obey your parents. Servants are mentioned before their masters, and a twelve verse 5, be obedient to your masters. Well, this concept of submission to authority 
is, and I think I know this as well as anybody who is listening to me today, is extremely unfashionable and unpopular in our modern world. It's totally at variance with the permissive spirit of today. And almost nothing is calculated to arouse such vigorous protest in contemporary society as this kind of talk. Ours is an age of liberation, liberation for women, liberation for children, liberation for workers, and anything savoring of oppression is deeply resented. We all know that, all right? How are Christians to react to this contemporary mood? I wonder how you are expecting me to reply to my own question. Our initial reaction to these liberation movements, although I'm going to qualify it in a moment, should, in my view, undoubtedly be one of welcome. We must agree that women in many cultures have been exploited and treated like servants in their own homes. Children have often been suppressed and squashed not least in Victorian England, in which they were supposed to be seen but not heard. And workers have often been unjustly treated, given inadequate wages and living conditions and an insufficient share in responsible decision-making. And nothing in these paragraphs that we are going to study is incompatible with the true liberation of human beings from exploitation, humiliation, or oppression. On the contrary, to whom do women, children, and workers chiefly owe their liberation? Is it not to Jesus Christ? It's Jesus Christ who treated women with honor and respect and courtesy in an age in which they were despised. It's Jesus Christ who said, let the little children come to me, in an age in which unwanted babies were consigned to the local garbage dump. It's Jesus Christ who taught the dignity of service, working himself as a carpenter, washing his disciples' feet, and saying, I am among you as a serving man. So, with regard to the subject matter of these paragraphs, we Christians must constantly affirm these truths, the dignity of womanhood and childhood and servanthood, the equality of all human beings, irrespective of sex, age, class, race, culture, because all created in the image of God and the even deeper unity of believers in Jesus Christ as fellow members of the family of God and of the body of Christ. Do I need to remind you that the Apostle Paul, all through Ephesians, has been unfolding the wonder of God's new society, which is a single new humanity in which the middle walls of partition have been broken down by Jesus? We may be quite certain, therefore, that he's not now contradicting himself. He's not now destroying his own thesis. 
He is not now erecting new barriers within the only community in which Jesus Christ has abolished them. We must give the Apostle Paul a little credit for consistency of thinking. So, how are we to interpret these paragraphs in the light of this biblical truth? Well, before I finish this introduction, there are two things I'd like to say about the concept of authority in the Bible. The first is, where does it come from? And the second is, what is it given for? Where does it come from? It comes from God. The God of the Bible is a God of order and of structure, and in his ordering of society, of the state and the family and so on, God has established certain authority or leadership roles in the community. But submission to that kind of authority is not to be misunderstood in terms of inferiority. Submission and inferiority are two totally different words and concepts. We need to learn, and Martin Luther understood this, and so, incidentally, the Lutherans today, we need to understand the difference between persons on the one hand and the roles or offices which they fulfill on the other. For example, in a court of law, there are two men who are equal in the sight of God because created in the image of God. But because one happens to be the magistrate who is on the bench and the other is in the dock, God has given a certain authority to the magistrate to which the other man must submit. They are equal. But in this particular office that God has given the magistrate, the other is to submit to him. It is, in principle, exactly the same with husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and servants. They have an equal dignity as God-like beings made in the image of God. But they have different God-given roles to fulfill. And the husband, the parent, the master has a certain authority role, a certain leadership or responsibility still to be defined, to which the other is to submit. It's not an inferiority of person, you see. It is a submission to a certain leadership role that God has established in society. Now, this is very clearly taught in the paragraphs before us. Chapter 5, verse 22, Wives, be subject to your husbands as unto the Lord, because the Lord has given him this authority role. Verse 1 of chapter 6, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. 6, 5, Slaves, be obedient to your masters as unto Christ. In other words, behind the husband, the parent, the master, you must see the Lord himself who has given them their particular authority or responsibility. And then if you need to submit to him, you must submit to them because it is his authority that they bear. So the authority comes from God through Christ. The other question is this, how is it to be used? Answer, for the benefit of those over whom it has been given. Without doubt, the most striking feature of these paragraphs is that in each relationship, there are reciprocal duties. 
It is true that wives are to submit to their husbands, children to parents, servants to masters. It is true that this requirement of submission presupposes a certain authority in the other person. But husbands, parents, masters also have their obligations. And surely the most striking thing is that when Paul comes to their duties, the duties of husband, parent, master, in no case is it authority that he tells them to exercise. Instead, explicitly or implicitly, he warns them against an improper use of their authority. He forbids them to exploit their position. He commands them to give to the other party the respect that they deserve and the rights that are their due. So husbands are to love their wives, to care for them. That's how they are to express their authority. Parents are not to provoke their children, but to bring them up tenderly. Masters are not to threaten their servants, but to give them justice. So I sum up, I'm afraid, this rather lengthy and difficult introduction. Authority in biblical usage is not a synonym for tyranny, but for responsibility. And if we could understand that, I believe the heat would be taken immediately out of the contemporary controversy. Well, now we come to the three pairs, husbands and wives, verses 22 to 33. Wives submit, husbands love. Wives submit. Two reasons are given for the wife's submission or implied. One is drawn from creation and the other from redemption. Creation, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife. Now, the fact is stated here. It is elaborated elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 11 and in 1 Timothy 2. And there Paul de develops the argument and he derives it from creation. Because the woman was made after man, out of man, for man, and so on. And since he argues from the facts of creation, the fundamental truth that he states has permanent and universal validity. It is not culturally limited. And we should not be afraid to maintain that, however unpopular it may be today. Our human sexuality is part and parcel of our creation. Masculinity and femininity represent a profound distinction, which is not merely physiological, but deeply psychological. The sexes are equal, of course, but they are not identical. And the biblical perspective is to hold simultaneously the equality and the complementarity of the sexes. And to hold those two together are not incompatible. So a man finds himself in being a man, and a woman finds herself in being a woman. And self-discovery does not come from striving to be somebody else. And what creation has established, no culture is able to destroy. Creation and the complementarity of the sexes. 
The other argument is redemption, because if creation explains the relation between man and woman and husband and wife, redemption illustrates it. Verse 23, the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, that is his body, and he is himself its savior, and his headship is expressed in terms of salvation. So this redemption analogy, you see, illumines the nature of the husband's headship. The Christ as head of the church saves the church, and his headship is expressed more in saving than in ruling, for Christ protects and provides for the church. And similarly, in this context, the wife's submission to her husband is more to his care than to his rule. Similarly, husbands love your wives, verse 25 to verse 33. And Paul uses the two analogies to emphasize and illustrate the sacrifice and the care which the husband's love for his wife will involve. One is Christ's love, and the other is self-love. Christ's love. Jesus Christ showed his love for the church, his bride, by giving himself up for her. His love for her was sacrificial. His love for her was constructive. In order, verse 26, to sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, in order that one day he might present her to himself, a perfect, faultless, without spot, etc. In other words, so great is the heavenly bridegroom's love for his bride that he sacrificed himself for her in order to bring her to perfection. So husbands must love their wives as Christ loved his bride, the church, with a love that seeks the wife's highest welfare and is prepared for the utmost self-sacrifice in order to attain it. What a standard. And the other model, you see, is not Christ's love, but self-love. Verse 28, husbands are to love their wives as they love their own bodies, which in a sense their wives are, verse 31, since they become one flesh. And he who loves his wife loves himself, and nobody ever hates his own flesh. On the contrary, he takes care of it, he nourishes it, he cherishes it, and so does the husband, his wife. Let me try to sum this up. Some of you are husbands, others hope to be husbands one day. Some of you are wives, others hope to be wives one day. So let me have a word for husbands while the wives can block their ears and then vice versa. Husbands, what is stressed here in this passage is not your authority over your wife, but your love for her. Or rather, your authority is defined in terms of loving responsibility. You see the English word authority conjures up in so many people's minds Ideas of power and dominion and even of oppression. Power that issues commands and expects obedience. Power that crushes people. 
power that prevents them from developing their own personality and finding their own personhood. But that's not the kind of headship and authority that Paul is talking about here, of which the model is Christ. Does Christ treat his church like that? Of course not. Well, authority indeed, headship implies a certain leadership, a certain initiative, as when Christ came to woo and to win his bride, but specifically it implies sacrifice, self-giving on behalf of the beloved, as when Christ gave himself for his bride. And if it means power at all, then this headship implies power to care, not power to crush, power to serve, not power to dominate. For as Peter says, the woman is the weaker sex, and the husband must protect her, care for her, nourish, cherish, love his wife. Now, wives, let me say something about this word submission that so many found difficult. I wish in a way I had longer to go into it, but I can only, I want to say four things very quickly. One, the requirement of submission on behalf of the wife is a particular example of a general Christian duty. Verse 21, be subject to one another. Verse 22, wives, be subject to your husband. If it is the wife's duty as wife to be subject to her husband as it is, it is also the husband's duty as Christian to be subject to his wife. Mutual submissiveness is a universal Christian obligation. And the wife's submission is just a particular example of a general Christian duty. Two, this requirement of submission is to be given to a lover and not to a tyrant. The apostle's instruction is not wives submit husband's boss. It's wives submit husband's love. His leadership, his initiative is to be expressed in responsible and loving care. And why should she be reluctant to submit to a lover who loves like that? Three, the requirement of submission is submission to a lover who loves like Christ. Does it sound hard to be required to be submissive? Then consider the responsibility of the husband who is to give the totality of self-sacrifice to his wife and to love her with Calvary love. Which of those two is the higher and the more difficult standard? I believe it is the husband's. Four, this submission is, when you think about it, another aspect of love. Wives submit husbands love. It is true the words are different. Submit and love are different words. But when you try to define them, it's not easy to distinguish between them. What does it mean to submit? Why, it's to give yourself up to somebody. What does it mean to love? It is to give yourself up for somebody. Submission and love are both expressions of that selfless, self-giving which is the only basis of enduring harmony in marriage. 
Well, now we must hurry on to children and parents. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Because children have to realize that the Lord has delegated to the parents his own authority. And behind the parents stands the Lord himself. And the parents mediate to their children, at least during the period of their minority, divine authority. And parents are, in fact, in locker di, in the place of God, to their children. So, children, obey your parents, at least during your minority, as to the Lord, for this is right. Parents, because the Greek for fathers will here include mothers, just as the word for brethren means brothers and sisters, parents, don't provoke your children to anger. New English Bible, don't goad them to resentment. New International Version, don't exasperate your children. In other words, although they must obey you, don't misuse your parental authority, either by making irritating and unreasonable demands, or by harshness, or by cruelty, or by favoritism, or overindulgence, on the other hand. Oh, there is a place for discipline, as Paul goes on, but it must never be arbitrary or unkind. So here you see as a recognition, centuries before Freud had ever been thought of, here is a recognition that little children are delicate and fragile creatures, and that although they are to obey their parents in the Lord, they have a life of their own and a little personality of their own, and in fact they are little people in their own right created in the image of God. And as such they are to be respected, and they are not to be exploited or manipulated or crushed. Don't exasperate them. No, but bring them up, nourish them, Calvin, in his commentary, puts it, let them be fondly cherished. Hendrickson, rear them tenderly. See, again, an understanding of their fragility and the need for the tenderness and the security of love. How are they to be brought up? Well, in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Instruction indicates the mental upbringing and discipline the moral upbringing of children. As a rather eccentric Episcopal clergyman in New York between the wars, called who is usually known as Daddy Hall, the Bishop of Wall Street, wasn't a real bishop, but that's what his friends called him, he once said, I was brought up at my mother's knee and across my father's. He gave me the stripes, and I saw the stars. <laughs> well, I think that's biblical. There is a place for discipline, and there is a place for instruction. But they are little people to be respected in their own right, children and parents. And now we come to slaves and masters, verses 5 to 9. Slaves are also to obey their masters, because behind them they are to see their heavenly master, Christ, so verse 5, be obedient to your earthly masters as unto Christ. And when you see Christ behind your master, then your service to your earthly master will be exemplary, respectful, wholehearted, conscientious, 
willing. All these details are here in the text. But then I think I need just to say a word about the problem of slavery. Why doesn't the Bible condemn it outright? Why doesn't Paul forbid it here? Slavery was, still is, in those countries where it is perpetuated, in some Islamic countries, is a horrible thing. Horrible because it implies one human being owning another human being and therefore denying the other human being's humanity as a creature made in the image of God. It is a horrible thing, it is an indefensible thing, and its continuance was indefensible for so many centuries. So why was it not condemned and abolished at the beginning of the Christian era? Probably the answer is that slavery was so much part of the fabric of Roman society, there were many more slaves than free people in those days, that it simply could not have been abolished at a single stroke without the complete disintegration of society. And it was part of the fallenness of society that it had to be perpetuated for a while longer. At the same time, although Christians cannot escape a sense of deep shame and humiliation that it wasn't abolished earlier, Yet we must clearly understand that if the New Testament doesn't condemn slavery outright, it doesn't condone it either. On the contrary, Paul urges slaves in 1 Corinthians 7, if they can get their freedom, by all means to take it. And he gives Philemon a very clear hint that now that Onesimus has been converted, he should release him from his slavery. So what the gospel did was immediately to undermine the institution of slavery and to light a fuse which in the end led to an explosion that abolished the institution. What is this fuse that was lighted? Well, let's try to understand it because it's very beautiful and very wonderful. It is that in what Paul teaches here to slaves and masters, there are reciprocal duties. Slaves are to obey their masters. Masters are to treat their slaves with justice. Unheard of. Justice? Paul, you must be out of your mind. There isn't any such thing as justice for slaves. In Roman law, you see, there was no such thing. Slaves were the property of their masters. Their master could thrash them, torture them, kill them, do anything they liked to their slaves, and there was no redress in Roman law. There was no appeal for justice in Roman law. Slaves didn't have any rights. And where there are no rights, there is no justice. Ah, but Paul says slaves do have rights. Masters, treat your slaves with justice. They have rights. Now, that is revolutionary. And we need to understand it because, you see, the other person's rights are my duty, just as my duties become the other person's rights. And it was the the gospel that insisted that slaves had rights. And I would like just to mention that in labor relations today, the same basic principle of justice based on reciprocity applies and holds good. 
Employers and employees alike have duties. The employee has a duty to give good work. The employer has a duty to pay a just wage. And each man's duty becomes the other man's right. If it is the employee's duty to give good work, it is the employer's right to expect it. If it is the employer's duty to pay a fair wage, it is the employee's right to expect it. And the great problem in management labor disputes today is that each side concentrates on securing its rights. You do your duty, mate, and give me my rights. And Paul says, but you know, the, the way to go on is to reverse that emphasis. The way to go on in these uh, disputes is to concentrate on doing my duty and securing the other man's rights. And if I concentrate on getting him his rights and doing my duty, then management and labor relations would be sweetened overnight. Who says the Bible isn't up to date? But the trouble is that the clock is up to date. And we move now from harmony in the home to stability in the fight. Paul has come to the end of his letter, and having throughout the letter described this most beautiful vision of the new society, the harmony that God intends in the church and in the home, he now brings us down to earth with a bump. And he reminds us of the opposition. Beneath surface appearances, an unseen battle is raging with principalities and powers of evil. Is God's plan to create a new society? Then the devil will do his best to destroy it. Does God intend his people to live together in love and harmony? Then the principalities and powers will sow discord and evil. So he tells us about the enemy. He says our enemy is not human, but demonic. Our enemy is powerful. Our enemy is wicked. And our enemy is cunning. Powerful, wicked, and cunning. How can we possibly stand against him? It is impossible in our puny human strength. The principalities and powers of evil are far more than a match for us. Only the power of God can defend and deliver us from the might and the evil and the craft of the devil. Oh, the principalities and powers are strong, but the power of God is stronger. Do you remember? It is the power of God that raised Christ from the dead and set him in his own right hand in heavenly places and put these very principalities and powers under the feet of Christ. It is the power that has raised us up with Christ and exalted us to the throne of Christ and put everything under our feet if we are in Christ. So we must be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And we must put on the whole armor of God, like a soldier. Now, Paul was very familiar with the Roman soldier. As a matter of fact, he was chained to one by the wrist while he was dictating this letter. 
that although such a bodyguard would be unlikely to wear the full armour of an infantryman on the battlefield, the presence of this Roman soldier to whom he was handcuffed probably gave him this imaginative uh, picture of the soldier in complete armour. And he writes of the girdle of truth. We need to be girt about with truth. The girdle really belongs to the soldier's underwear rather than to his armour. He'd gathered his flowing tunic together. It ensured that he was unimpeded in the march. It gave him a certain hidden strength and confidence. It's the same today, isn't it? If you wear a belt, it gives you a kind of feeling of hidden strength and confidence. And... Uh, it's the same for the, the Christian soldier's girdle is truth, the truth and truthfulness, sincerity, transparency, guilelessness. This is the way to overcome the devil who loves the darkness. The girdle of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, which may be justification or may be righteousness of living. The gospel shoes a readiness at any moment to share the good news with other people, the shield of faith, crying in humble confidence to God for power and for deliverance when the fire-tipped arrows of the devil are winging their way towards us, then the helmet of salvation, and finally the sword of the Spirit, which we can wear in offense as well as in defense, not only in temptation, but also in evangelism as we go out to conquer further territory for God with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God in the Gospel. And in addition to those six pieces of armor, there is the need for prayer, praying at all times, in all circumstances, in the Spirit, and Paul asks them to pray also for him. We conclude then with the final greeting in which he says, Grace, verse 23, peace be to the brothers, and verse 24, grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. And no two words can sum up the message of the letter to the Ephesians better than these two words, peace and grace. For peace is reconciliation. Reconciliation with God, reconciliation with one another. Jesus Christ has made peace by the blood of his cross. Peace with God, peace with one another. He's reconciled us. This is the new society that is characterized by love and by peace. And grace is the origin of it all. The free and undeserved favor of God. God's gracious kindness to the undeserving. And it's because he is a gracious God that he's made peace between us and himself and between us and one another. That's the vision, the vision of the whole epistle of a new society of love and peace by the sheer grace and mercy of God. And I don't think I can conclude the exposition of this epistle better than by venturing to take upon my own lips the very words with which Paul concluded his great letter and say to you, peace be to the brethren and grace be with you all. Amen.
Let us pray. Let's thank God again together for this beautiful vision of the new society, full of love and peace and joy, with no barriers, no middle walls of partition, no racism, no classism, no sexism, nothing to separate or sunder or alienate us from one another or from God. A new society of peace, of harmony, of love. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this vision of what your family is intended to be. And sometimes we want to weep bitter tears because of the condition of the church today, falling so far short of this beautiful ideal. But again we pray for your power to renew your church until the dream comes true and make us instruments of your peace and love for the glory of your great and worthy name. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and a message titled New Relationships that John Stott presented at Founders Week 1977. John Stott was an author and rector emeritus of All Souls Church in London, England. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Join us next week as we bring you a two-part series of messages J. Vernon McGee presented at Founders Week 1982 and 1980. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.